night. Brothers and sisters, it's a joy to be with you here this morning. And as we turn our attention to hearing the preaching of the Word of God, let us turn in God's Word to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation 3 this morning we'll be looking at verses 7 to 13. As you're turning there, have you ever had a passage of Scripture, some verses of Scripture that spoke to you, that, that you felt just so resonated with your soul, that stirred your heart, that encouraged you at a time where you desperately needed it? Well, that's what I found in this passage as I sought to study and prepare to open this word to you. It has been such a blessing to my soul. And I hope and pray it will be an encouragement to all of you as well. I pray then that we will all receive this encouragement from God's Word. And so let's read together Revelation 3, <clears throat> verses 7 to 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they're Jews and are not but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I'll write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Brothers and sisters, before we continue, let us pray. O oh Lord, this morning you have given us precious words. You've given us hope-filled words. You have given us words of encouragement so that we will continue enduring by faith in your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. May you then be at work in our minds and in our hearts to receive this truth so that we will receive them for what they are which is the Word of God. 
And through them, Lord, may we all indeed rejoice and revel in the goodness and glory of Jesus Christ and in His Gospel, which saves our souls and which secures us a place in heaven to dwell in Your presence forever. Father, may we live with this hope because of Christ. And we ask that You will bring it then clearly before us as Your Word is preached under the empowerment of Your Holy Spirit, Lord. May none of us leave unchanged, but encouraged. So, Father, we pray for all these things then in Jesus Christ's holy and truthful name. Amen. Amen. Brothers and sisters, what is the encouragement that we receive from this word this morning? Since Christ is our King, let us endure in faithfulness to Him. Christ is our King! So let us endure in our faithfulness to Him. And this encouragement to us comes through four truths in this letter. There's our provider, our perseverance, our protection, and our promise that I'll come through this first. So four Ps, our provider, our perseverance, our protection, and finally, our promise. Let's begin then by considering verse 7 this morning, where Christ is our Provider. Of course, John has been recording a series of visions through the book of Revelation to both equip and encourage Christ's churches who are struggling and suffering under tribulation in this age. That's why Revelation is sent by Christ, or this revelation of Christ is sent to seven churches, which represent all of Christ's churches in this age. And after an opening vision of Christ in all His glory, ruling and reigning from heaven, our glorious King now gives specific letters to each church. And this morning we then come to the sixth of seven letters, which we see here in verse 7, is to the church of Philadelphia. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia writes... Of course, this is not the American city of Philadelphia that so many of us are familiar with, but I'm sure many of you know what the word Philadelphia means, which is the city of brotherly love. But you know, this actually comes from the, one of the founders of the city back in this ancient time in Asia Minor, because he had such a great love for his older brother that the city was named after him. But this city itself was about 30 miles southeast of Stardust, and it was known for its active volcanoes and the many earthquakes that had taken place through its history, which is why there was a certain instability in the city. But with the volcanic activity also brought fertile soil which made it ideal then for growing grapes and why wine was produced there, along with other agriculture. But it's to this church 
Christ writes. And as he does so, we have four descriptions of Christ, each beginning with him saying, He who is. He who is. He who is. He who is. Together, these describe then Christ's royal sovereignty and his rule as our heavenly king. And so the first description then of our king, King Jesus, as these things says, we go on to read, He who is holy. Christ is holy. He is separate from His creation as the Creator. He is in His holiness righteous and pure and who alone then is worthy of our worship. And this holiness of God then is frequently expressed throughout the Old Testament and especially in the book of Isaiah. But not only is Christ holy, what do we go on to see? That He is also He who is true. Of course, many had doubted or even denied that Jesus was the true Messiah, as promised in the Old Testament. The anointed king that God had promised. But here, this is declared as true. He is God's anointed king. He is the Messiah. He is the true one that the Jews had been waiting for. And because he is true, he is trustworthy. That he is faithful to his covenant promises and will keep his words to his church, which is why we can have complete confidence. In Christ, as he said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So here we have Christ being described through Old Testament terms, and these two attributes are later brought together in Revelation chapter 6, verse 10, to describe God himself. See, Jesus Christ is God in the flesh who is now ruling and reigning as the God-man in heaven over all. What comfort then this Jesus would be to his church? I mean, compare Jesus to the earthly powers this church would have known. Whether the emperor, whether governors, whether religious leaders... They were corrupt. They were unfaithful. But here, as Christ is revealed to them, we see that Christ will not take advantage of the, His church, that He will not let down His church, because He will never leave you or forsake you. So it is he who is holy and he who is true. But then we go on to see that he also is the one who has the key of David. To understand this, we need to go back to the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22. This is what we read. The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder. So he shall open and no one shall shut. And he shall shut and no one shall open. Now, this verse from Isaiah was originally applied to 
Eliakim, who's the son of Hilkiah. And Eliakim became the king's representative in Israel, which is why he was given this key of the king. But Eliakim was a type points us towards our greater king, King Jesus. And what is this key of David? It had been given well in Scripture, a key represents power and authority, right? If I have a key, I am the one who can let people in or keep people out of a place. Well, the key of David is the authority and power that God gave to his chosen king, David, and to his descendants so that they would then rule over his people and his kingdom. So Christ here is seen as the descendant of King David who fulfills all of God's promises to David and who rules over his messianic kingdom. And what does he do with this key? As we go on to read here in Revelation, the fourth, he who, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. He opens and shuts with this key because he is the one who controls those who enter or exit God's heavenly kingdom. He is the one who opens and shuts the very gates of heaven. And with this key, he then entrusts this authority and power to his church. Which is why we read in Matthew 16, 19, Jesus saying to Peter, that I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So Christ gives his apostles and his church the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And as we proclaim the gospel of the glory of Christ, the gates of heaven are open. Salvation is found. And people enter into the presence of God through Jesus Christ, who is the key of David. What an encouragement to our souls then this is as we remember and rejoice in Jesus Christ as our King. Because He is the sovereign Lord over all things, which is why we can have confidence in Him and in His Word, even in the hardest of circumstances. See, this world may be unstable. We don't know what's coming, but we have the unchanging words of Christ to strengthen us in His grace. He is our perfect provider. So let us trust in Him. Not only does this letter begin by showing us Christ, our provider, but we go on to read how Christ is the one who gives us perseverance. Our perseverance, then, we read of in verse 8. And Christ says to the church of Philadelphia here, I know your works. See, as with the other letters, Christ knows this church's works. 
He is present among them. He knows what they are doing. But unlike the other churches, there's no rebuke for sin here. This church has remained faithful to Christ. And so it's one of two churches that Christ approves of their works without any criticism. The other one is Smyrna, which in many ways, the letter to Smyrna actually parallels this letter to the church of Philadelphia. But here's what we go on to see in verse 8, that before Christ then goes on to speak of their works, he wants them to remember that he alone is the one who's given them an open door. And so we go on to read there in verse 8, See, I have set before you an open door. But what door does Christ open for his church? Well, there are many who think this is an opportunity for ministry and for evangelism. But I think this door, in light of what we have already seen in verse 7, and in light of what we see more broadly in Revelation, is better understood as the entrance to heaven itself. After all, you can look ahead to the beginning of chapter 4, and what do we read there as it begins? After these things I looked, John writes, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. So you see, with the key of David, Christ opens the door for his church to enter into the kingdom of heaven itself. And brothers and sisters, he does this through his death and his resurrection. It is as Jesus Christ takes upon himself the very judgment of God that we deserve for our sin. And then rises from the dead to overcome death. That the gates are open. That the key unlocks the heavenly kingdom. And that we are saved from the wrath of God we deserve. What a, a, a beautiful yet costly opening of this door. But you know what's amazing? That because it's Christ who opens this door, what do we go on to see there in verse 8? And no one can shut it. The Romans may oppose them as insurrectionists, the Jews may deny that they are God's people, but they don't have the key of David. They are not in control of whether the door is open or shut. That is Christ alone. And for this church, He opens the door. See, in the midst of all the opposition that this church was facing, Christ wants to encourage this church and fill them with hope. And so he's saying to them, nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so it's with this precious truth in mind that Christ continues to speak of this church's works of faithfulness. 
And so we go on to read there in verse 8. For you have a little strength. Now, this could be better translated, you only have a little strength. He's not commenting on how much strength they have, but on how little strength they have. See, the church of Philadelphia would not have been a church that the world would envy. But this was a small church without worldly success. They had little strength. This wasn't an ancient megachurch with a well-known pastor who would be influential in the city of Philadelphia. This was a church that was struggling for survival under persecution. So this church didn't have much money. It didn't have many members. They don't have social standing. They don't have cultural clout. They don't have political power. But do you know what they do have? The Word of God. And so we go on to read there that they have kept my Word. This church, even with the little strength they have, even with all of their weakness and smallness, They believe in the gospel and they obey the scriptures even when it meant hardship and when it meant hatred in this world. See, they followed Christ when it wasn't popular. And they committed to living according to God's word no matter the cost. Which is why we go on to read of their works. Not only have they kept my word, Christ says, but at the end of verse 8, and have not denied my name. Now, this is the temptation we face when the world opposes us, isn't it? To deny Christ's name. And it was this temptation that the previous church fell for. Do you remember? Back earlier in chapter 3, the church in Sardis. What did they do? Most from Sardis had refused to confess Christ's name and their love for the world. Yet this church has not given in. The church of Philadelphia was willing to endure suffering to honor Christ's name. You see, while this church may not have had much strength in this world, what's Jesus saying to them? that He has secured eternal life for them in heaven. And it is through His strength that they will persevere in the faith and endure in this world. So I ask you this morning, have you gone through the open door of heaven? Have you gone through the open door of heaven? Because, listen, Christ invites all to go through the open door as you believe in Christ and trust in Him. As you turn away from your sins in repentance and turn to Christ in faith, no longer are the gates of heaven closed to you and you are on the hell, on, on, on the very road to hell the very place of punishment for sinners like you and me.
but in Christ. In Christ, there is an open door of salvation. Believe on Christ and be saved. Christ died and rose again to unlock heaven with the key of David. Believe in Christ. But we also find as a church how we persevere here, don't we? We don't persevere through our success. We don't persevere through worldly power. We don't persevere through our good works, but we persevere by depending on Christ and on his open door, which no one can shut. Let us then devote ourselves to listening to his word and obeying its truths because it's in this that we persevere. By keeping his words with the strength that he gives us, where we persevere even as a weak and powerless church in this world. Well, so far in this letter, we've seen our provider as well as our perseverance. But third, we see how Christ so gives us our protection. Verses 9 to 11. And now we see who has been causing trouble for the church in Philadelphia. It's the Jews. Look at verse 9. <clears throat> Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. So these were God's people, but they rejected Christ and they remain under then the, the condemnation of God's law for their sin. That's why there's actually so many Old Testament allusions here in this short letter. Because Christ wants to encourage the church that they are the true people of God, even if the Jews don't recognize them and persecute them for believing in Jesus. See, this was, again, the same problem we saw in the church in Smyrna. And so we have the same language used here that we had already seen in that letter, where the Jews are called those of the synagogue of Satan. And again, we're reminded how strong these words are. But they claim to be worshiping God, yet were actually carrying out the will of God's enemy, Satan, in their sin and under his control, since he is the God of the sinful world. That's why we go on to see then that they are not really Jews at all. Because a true Jew, is one who believes in God's covenant promises which are fulfilled in Christ. See, the spiritual Jews are truly God's people in Christ, which is why the ethnic Jews we see here are lying about their covenant relationship with God. 
That's why the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 2, verses 28 and 29, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he who is a Jew, uh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not of the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Brothers and sisters, what we all know is that in this world, what happens? The wicked often suffer. Or sorry, the wicked often prosper, while God's people often suffer. What we find here in this verse, verse 9, is that God's justice will come. And because God is the judge of all, He will do what is right, which is why these outward Jews then may be able to oppress the church in Philadelphia. But their relationship will one day be reversed when they stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That's what we go on to read in this verse. Again, let's keep reading in verse 9. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet. So Christ will make them bow down before these Christians. Now, obviously, this worship isn't the worship that should only come to God. But here, these ethnic Jews will bow down in submission before the church. And this alludes back to Isaiah chapter 60, verse 14, where we read, Also the sons of those who afflicted you shall come bowing to you, and all those who despised you shall fall prostrate at the soles of your feet. And they shall call you the city of the Lord, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. But do you know what's interesting? That in Isaiah... The Gentiles are the ones who will come and bow down before Israel. And now this promise is turned around. That the Jews have become like unbelieving Gentiles who will now bow down to honor those who are the true Jews in Christ. You see, the Jews in Philadelphia may have excluded these Christians from the synagogue and claimed that they were not God's people, but Christ is the one with the key. He is the one who opens and shuts, and he has opened the door for his church. What we see here is that he also closes the door and excludes these Jews from his heavenly kingdom while receiving the true Jews into his presence. And all of those in Christ will one day rule with him. And all unbelievers, including ethnic Jews, We'll see the love of Christ for his church. That's what we see at the end of verse 9. That when they are made to come and worship before your feet, Christ says, and to know that I have loved you. They will see and recognize the great love that Christ has for his church. Now, as I said before, none of these hard words mean that we should treat the Jews poorly or that we should seek to harm them in any way, but it means we recognize their true spiritual condition before God and call on them to come to Christ, to join with us 
and receiving Him as our Savior. And knowing Him and recognizing Him as our Sovereign King. But then as we come to verse 10, we again read of this church's obedience to Christ and to His Word by keeping His command to persevere. Let's look at verse 10. Christ says, Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial. So there's a word play here. Because they kept his command, what will Christ do? He will keep them from the hour of trial. Do you see how keep or kept is used here? But this verse, as we come to consider it, is a classic proof text for dispensationalism and the pre-tribulational rapture where Christ would come to remove his church before this great tribulation begins in this world. But the question we must ask as we read this verse is this. When Christ says, I will keep you from, what does the from refer to? Is it a removal from, or is it a protection from? And I think it's helpful here to look back on the words of Jesus as recorded by the same author of Revelation in John's Gospel. Because when Jesus was praying in his high priestly prayer to God the Father, listen to what he says. John 17, verse 15. John says, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should, listen, but that you should keep them from the evil one. Same words. You see, a careful reading here shows that Christ is saying he will protect them through this hour of trial so that they will stand firm in their faith in Christ, not that he'll remove them before this trial. Why then do we see this? Well, Jesus himself had said in Matthew 24, 9, that they should expect tribulation. And he, he says to his disciples of this, these coming days, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. That is what we should expect as Christians in the final days. Or later, as his disciples preached in Acts 14, verse 22, they said, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. You see, Christ never promises to remove us from tribulation. But he will protect us through it. Let's look closer at this tribulation for a moment there in verse 10. Because this is the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world. So this hour of trial is not like the 10-day tribulation that the church of Smyrna was warned was coming. But this trial will come upon the whole world. So I agree with George Eldon Ladd when he writes of this, that John viewed the troubles which the church will suffer in the near future against the background of the consummation of evil and the time of terrible trouble at the end. 
So it's this worldwide future tribulation which is recorded as Revelation continues to unfold. But why is there this tribulation, this time of trial, or this, as we see in this verse here, this hour of trial? Well, again, we go on to read in verse 10 that this hour of trial comes to test those who dwell on the earth. Now, this phrase, those who dwell on the earth, is used in Revelation to describe the unbelievers of the world. And so it shows us that this is a trial of the wicked of the world, not of the church of Philadelphia. They are not the ones under trial. But it's the unbelievers who will be those under trial. See, the world will be put on trial by God for our sinfulness. And this test will show the hardness and deadness of the hearts of those who dwell on the earth. So the world may come under the judgment of God, but not the church of Christ. Because we will be protected through this final hour of God's wrath, which is coming on the world for its sinfulness. You see, we may come under the wrath of Satan through persecution or even martyrdom, but we will not come under God's wrath since Christ protects us until we finally and fully receive eternal life in Him. And that's why in verse 11, Christ then reminds them of His return. Let's see. But he says there, Behold, I am coming quickly. This is where the Christian hope is found. Not to escape suffering in the world, but to endure suffering until we will enjoy eternal life. And it's with this hope then that we hold fast to our faith in Christ. It's what we go on to read there in the verse. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown over and over again here. Christ encourages his church by reminding us that our suffering may be severe, but it's only temporary. What is eternal? The crown of glory that we will one day receive when our Savior returns. And by remaining faithful, no one will take this crown. As Christ promised the church of Smyrna in chapter 2, verse 10, be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. And the same is true here for the church of Philadelphia. After remaining faithful to Christ, they will receive the crown of life. So, brothers and sisters, are we living with his future hope, knowing that God will judge our enemies, that Christ will protect us from his wrath, and that we will receive the crown of life when Christ returns. Because it is with this encouragement of our future hope, we will endure the suffering and the tribulation 
of this world. But after considering our provider, after considering our perseverance, and after considering our protection, we finally come in this letter to our promise. Our promise, which is given in verses 12 to 13. What does Christ promise to those who overcome the temptations and trials and tribulation of this world? Christ will give us many rewards when he returns. We read of them beginning there in verse 12, where he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. We will be made pillars in God's temple. Now think of pillars for a moment. A pillar stands firm in order to support a structure. It's why so often we find among the ancient ruins of the Roman Empire, what? Pillars, which have remained still standing after all the centuries. But not in Philadelphia, with all of its volcanic activity and earthquakes, because their pillars are temporary. But this isn't true of the pillars in God's heavenly temple. Because these are permanent pillars and will last forever. But this imagery here of pillars is, of course, drawn from the Old Testament temple. Think then here of the contrast Christ portrays between the Jews and the church. Where were the Jews worshiping? The synagogues. Why? because their temple had been destroyed. Been destroyed under the judgment of God. But there's another temple that Christ builds. And he builds through opening the door of the kingdom of heaven and salvation of his people. You see, this temple in the heavens is constructed with pillars of souls that are saved. These Christians will become pillars in God's temple. And as the temple was where God's special presence was found in the Old Testament, so here Christians will one day live in God's very special presence once more. But there's also a connection here from King David to King Jesus. Remember, David wanted to build a temple for God. What do you have to do? And trust the building of God's temple to his son. Well, Jesus then uses the king of David as his ultimate son to build the temple of heaven with those who believe in him as its pillars. Do you see then how Christ opens the door for us to live in God's presence in this heavenly temple? But don't miss the glorious truth that comes next. Because in verse 12, we go on to read that I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and he shall go out no more. He shall go out no more. We will never 
leave God's presence. His temple will be our home and we will dwell with him forever. Our enjoyment then of living in God's presence will never end. This is first reward that is mentioned here for those who overcome by Christ's grace. But second, not only will we dwell securely in God's presence, but we will also bear His name. That's what we go on to read in verse 12. Christ says, I will write on Him the name of my God. Now let's not engage in crass literalism here. This temple is a heavenly temple, not a physical building. Right? It's made up of God's people. It's an expression that describes our dwelling in the presence of God. And in a similar way, Christ here is not going to become a tattoo artist. Somehow ink these divine names on our skin. But this is symbolic language that is used to reveal our permanent identity when Christ returns. That we will, He will forever be our God. And we will forever dwell with him when heaven and earth merge together. But there's more names that we will receive. It's not only will he write on us the name of my God and the name, but the name next we see of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. So we go on to see then this name of the heavenly city given to us because we will be citizens of the city. This will be where we live in God's presence. It's a then a spiritual passport that cannot be stolen and which will never expire because God's dwelling place is our home. We will be residents and citizens of Christ's heavenly kingdom. So there's a threefold name that's given here. First, we're given the name of, Christ says, we're given the name of my God. Second, we're given the name of the city. But third, Christ goes on to say, and I will write on him my new name. Now, what is Christ's new name? Well, if you look forward in Revelation, you go on to chapter 19 when Jesus Christ returns. And this is what we read. 19 verses 12 and 13 of Christ. That his eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. And he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. So what is the new name of Christ? We don't know. It's a mystery. Brothers and sisters, what is amazing is that he will share his new name with us. And notice that these rewards all come because of God's grace for us in Christ. Did you hear how often Christ said, I will, I will, 
I will. So, brothers and sisters, this does not depend on our success as a church. This does not depend on our works and our ministry efforts. But we find here what Christ promises to give us as those who are believing and trusting in Him and are continuing to walk by faith and trusting in His Word. None of this glorious future depends on us. It will be carried out by Christ for us. What a future then this church has to look forward to in Christ. In the midst of their instability and the suffering that they faced here, Christ promises all who overcome stability in his presence and the glory of his name. And so we come to verse 13, where, as with the other letters, this letter calls all of Christ's churches to hear this message. And we read there, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the Spirit is speaking to us this morning through the church of Philadelphia. But are we listening? Are we like the church of Philadelphia? Well, brothers and sisters, as your pastor, I can't help but see us reflected in this church, in its weakness, in its smallness, in its powerlessness. We're going through a lot of struggles, aren't we? I mean, I'm looking out this morning at many empty pews. We've received the budget this morning we're going to be voting on later this month where we see various financial struggles. It's easy to look at our circumstances. It's easy to consider our situation. And as we look at our weakness, we fail to see the glories of Christ with his providing us an open door and no one can shut. And this is the encouragement my soul needed as your pastor. I hope it's the encouragement that we will all receive together as his church. See, Christ takes this little, this church of little strength and gives them blessings beyond measure. And while we, not be, may, we may not be the great mega churches in the city that everybody knows of and that everybody downloads and watches and listens to their sermons, and do you know what matters? We have the Word of God. We follow and obey the Word of God. And we uphold the name of Christ as our Savior and do not deny it. In a society and a culture which is going to more and more push against our faith in Christ. But in the midst of 
our difficulties and in the midst of our uncertainty, we have Christ as He who is holy, as He who is true, as He who is, has the key of David that opens the kingdom of heaven and that no one can shut. Brothers and sisters, may our faithfulness continue until Christ returns and we will dwell with him as we bear his name. Since Christ is our King, let us endure in faithfulness to him. Let us pray. Father, Father, what an encouraging word you have given us this morning as your people. That you take what is weak in the world and display your strength. And that in the midst of all of our struggles and our suffering, we're reminded of the glories of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, may this be where our hope is found. Not in our size, not in our success, but in Christ as we endure whatever is brought in this world because we have a future eternity to enjoy in your presence. So Father, we pray for all these things in the name our sweet Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.